0: Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Janis Joplin died at the age of 27, and she died under mysterious circumstances. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. One would be the number of Harley riding men who entered her life as an unknown and an outsider, got closer to her than anyone, and then exited just as strangely as he had arrived. Six would be the hour, in the evening, that someone would finally go looking for Janis Joplin after she failed the show at that day's recording session for her new album, Pearl. Another one would be the number of baggies of heroin she had hidden in her hotel room's dresser drawer a deadly strain imported to the States by the jet-setting angel of death himself, Jean de Brutel. Four more would be the number of dollars she had on her person, still clenched tight in her hand when she was found some 18 hours after her body would hit the floor. And 15 would be the number of minutes she'd have left to live after she got high one last time and then found a forgotten letter that had been waiting for her for months, all totaling 27. On this... Our final episode of season three, Harley riding men, China White, forgotten letters, and Janice Joplin walking a winding path to liberation. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Jumped the curb with ease. In the air, Seth Morgan felt a warm California breeze rattle through the gaps in his teeth. He heard the girl on the back of the bike scream with absolute blood curdling terror. Morgan ceased to experience time at all. He couldn't tell if time had, in fact, stopped, or if it was actually barreling forward with maniacal speed, just like the Harley was barreling recklessly forward in the middle of the air. Morgan was drunk. If someone had asked him, someone in a position of authority, like a cop or something, if they asked him if he was high too, he'd deny it. Though he probably was high, he just couldn't remember if he was high or what he was high on, on account of how drunk he was. And then, just like that, time resuming its normal plodding pace, and it fucking hurt like hell. The Harley slammed into the wall of a house off the side of the road. There was a sound of chrome cutting into clapboard, and then the sound of twisted steel like the house was swallowing the goddamn bike, and then the smell of fuel so ripe it seared Morgan's nostrils. The bike was upside down on the ground, the rear wheel spinning so fast it looked like it was possessed. The front end of the bike had actually penetrated the side of the house. Morgan picked himself up off the ground and looked for the girl. She was a waitress in Sausalito, and she was his girlfriend. But the impact of the crash had obviously rattled his cage a little too much, and now he was having trouble remembering her name. Morgan found her flung against the corner of the house a full two bikes' length down the lawn. As soon as Morgan saw her face, he knew the damage would be permanent, life-changing. The blood was everywhere. Her face was cut open and smashed shut, eyes swollen, her legs were as twisted as the handlebars on the bike. He had to shake her awake. At first, he didn't even know she was alive. She pulled through, and Morgan breathed a heavy sigh of relief. It was another close call and a lifetime of close calls. Soon after, he would ask the girl to marry him, not because it was the expected thing to do, given that they had been together for a little while now, but he really didn't want her to sue him for the accident. Some said that Seth Morgan could have been a literary giant, his father, Frederick Morgan, was a noted poet and founder of the Hudson Review Quarterly. It was in his family and in his blood, but he wasn't focused enough. He took the corners a little too hard, didn't lay off the gas pedal enough. He answered the call of the wild a little too eagerly. Long rides on the highway, lots of drugs, zero fucks to give. The closest he got to a literary giant was that motorcycle crash. And When the cops showed up to the hospital, a couple of plainclothes guys, they asked Morgan if he knew whose house he had run into. He had no idea and he didn't really care. He was busy nursing a bruised elbow and pushing a call button to get a nurse into the room so that he could get something to dull the pain. He had a stash of good shit that he kept hidden at home like it was Al Capone's vault, but here at the hospital, he was at the mercy of others. Jack London, one of the cops told him. What? Morgan wasn't paying attention. The house you hit, the other cop added. It belonged to Jack London, way back. The naturalist. Sure, Jack London, Morgan knew that name. He still didn't care. And the cop went on. Wolf House is what the place is called. Those ruins near the house you fucking ran into? Fire burnt the place to the ground before they even finished building it decades ago. The place is on some National Historic Register or some bullshit. The first cop piped up. Do you hear that? You ran into a historic register. Jack London did his fair share of roaming, dropping out of school and hanging around Berkeley. He was a man after Morgan's own heart. Maybe Jack London would have forgiven Seth Morgan for catapulting his bike into the side of his old house. The current owners, not so much. Then the cops switched gears. They were done breaking the ice. The cops asked Morgan about her, not the Sausalito chick riding backside on the Harley, the other one, the one before, the girl from 1970. One of the cops got out a small notebook and turned to a clean page. California was a small world, they said they knew that he, Seth Morgan, had been engaged to Janice Joplin, not even a year ago. They knew he had called down to City Hall to inquire about getting a marriage license shortly before her death. And they knew that he was the closest person on earth to Janice Joplin when she was found dead in the Landmark Motor Hotel that October evening. They wanted to know everything he knew about that particular October evening. Where was he? What was he doing? When did he talk with her last, see her last? Why did he want to marry Janice Joplin? What exactly happened to Pearl? Morgan didn't deny being engaged to Janice, didn't deny that he was flying to LA that night to see her, that they had plans, but he didn't have anything else to say about her sudden death. He knew his rights. Plus, he'd already talked to the cops in Los Angeles when it first happened. He had told them everything he knew. He didn't know what these Sausalito cops had heard. Seth Morgan might be a lot of things, drug dealer, poet, fuck up, but he was not a suspect and the rumor mill had gone into overdrive when Janis died. Just days after her body was found by John Cook after not showing up for that day's recording session, conspiracy theories were all the rage. Did you hear? Janis Joplin was killed by a jealous guy. Now, I heard it was a jealous girl. You know what they say about who she liked between the sheets hold up. It was the CIA, man. The FBI. they have been watching her ever since the ghetto. She was too progressive, an enemy of the conservative state. Ha! The feds. Bullshit. It was the mafia. You don't think Janice had connections to made men? Come on, capable men? Qualified men? They iced it for some old drug debt, man. Don't kid yourself. Well, to be honest, I heard from a friend who heard from his second cousin who happened to overhear a conversation at Barney's Beanery in Los Angeles that it's all part of some rock and roll hit. It was the same people who did Jimi Hendrix last month in London, man. You just watch, Jack. More rock and rollers are gonna wind up dead. Real soon. In the Sausalito Hospital, Morgan was suddenly thinking about her again. He hadn't thought about her in months. Not that he didn't want to think about her, it just hurt too much. He hadn't let that particular wound heal. He just put some makeshift bandage over it, a bottle of scotch or a line of cocaine, and hoped it would go away on its own. But the reality didn't just go away. Janice Joplin was dead. And Seth Morgan, her final flame didn't know what to do with that kind of information besides jump a bike and ride very, very far away from it. Seth Morgan was an unknown, an outsider. He wasn't part of the scene, or any scene for that matter. He didn't know any of the musicians that Janis Joplin ran with, or the angels who called her a little sister. But when he first knocked on her front door at her house in Larkspur, like so many others had before, it was like he stepped out of an alternate reality. To Janis, it was like he stepped out of a dream. And he had. Those vivid dreams she used to have when she was lying in bed with Pigpen, the ones with the mystery man on the gold Harley painted with orange flames. Was it a coincidence that Morgan rolled up on the exact same bike? It felt cosmic, felt destined. Seth Morgan wasn't like Pig, up for anything and along for the ride. And he wasn't like David Nyhaus, Gregarious, and Starcross. He wasn't as chill as Chris Christopherson, wasn't as fucking insane as Peter DeBlanc, wasn't as beautiful as Jay Whitaker, the San Francisco Siren. Sure wasn't as spontaneous as Chet Helms, and he wasn't high on the smell of his own bullshit like Leonard Cohen or Jim Morrison. Seth Morgan was not like the other guys. She couldn't put her finger on it, but he was different. He didn't know her music, and he didn't particularly like it either. He didn't hide that fact. Something about this face value outsider rang her bell in just the right way. And they started spending days and nights together. Janice was so head over heels and so hell-bent on a stable relationship with a quote-unquote old man, to use the parlance of the times, that she was quickly talking about marriage. Morgan agreed to get married, but his disaffected face value of modus operandi had one caveat. It had to be an open marriage. Janice knew that Morgan couldn't be faithful. Every time she left Larkspur to work on her new record Pearl in Los Angeles with Paul Rothschild and the Full Tilt Boogie Band, Morgan would hang back. He'd call up girls he'd met through dealing and rambling, and they'd keep him company in Janice's bed. And Perhaps it was the mystery man in her dreams that convinced her to move forward. Or perhaps she thought she could get Morgan to be more faithful once they tied the knot and started thinking about her proper family. In reality, though, it was doomed from the start. And it was still doomed to the very end. On Saturday, October 3rd, 1970... Morgan called Janice from the Larkspur house to tell her that he wouldn't be flying into LA that night as planned. Something had come up and he wouldn't arrive until Sunday. Janice knew what something was. Some other chick who wasn't Janice, probably younger too, closer to Morgan's 22 years than Janice's 27. Something was lines of cocaine and bottles of booze and sweaty naked bodies writhing around Janice's bed while she was busy working. She was pissed. She slammed the phone's receiver down in the control room of Sunset Sound Studio. Paul Rothschild asked if everything was all right. Janice didn't want to talk about it. In fact, she didn't feel like doing anything at the moment. She told Rothschild that she was cutting out for the day. She'd record her vocal tomorrow, on Sunday. She'd return midday. She told him to call her at the Landmark Motor Hotel if she wasn't awake on time. Room 105. Janice swung by Barney's Beanery, the West Hollywood bar that had become a regular hangout for her since the great tequila boogie days with Chris Christofferson. She brought Ken Pearson the full Tilt Boogie Band's keyboardist so she could decompress from the day and lay her trip about Morgan on somebody. But at Barney's, Janice's mind was elsewhere. She wasn't thinking about Morgan, or about Larkspur, or the new record. She was thinking about the heroin she had hidden in the back of the dressing bureau drawer at her hotel room. 105. She closed her eyes at the bar and saw those numbers on the door to her room. 105. They were lit up glowing like something was being projected from inside the room, and the numbers on the door were cutouts that allowed the light to shine through. She needed to be in that room. She pictured herself inside the room now, opening the drawer and reaching inside, top drawer back and to the left, and pulling out the balloon of dope. Sweat ran down from her forehead to her ear. She knocked the rest of the pipe back and told Ken that she'd see him at the studio tomorrow. Janice's convertible Porsche was a streak of psychedelic color as it shot east on Hollywood Boulevard. The entire body of the car was one big multicolored mural. Butterflies, eyes, skulls, mushrooms, and even a portrait of Big Brother and the holding company were all drawn in eye-popping day-glow glory. Within minutes, the Porsche was parked and Janice was inside, to the source of that glowing 105. It was coming from inside the top drawer of the dresser bureau. It was 1 a.m. The Hollywood night churned outside her hotel room door, and the occasional street holler from some drunk stumbling down Franklin Avenue. Muffled noises from adjacent rooms, a cannonball splash. Someone was gleefully disobeying the hotel's rules and taking an after-hours dip. And the next few minutes in the room were all ritual. The routine was so mechanical that Janice didn't even take note of the motion she was going through anymore, transferring the heroin from the bag to the spoon. A dash of water, a flick of the Zippo. A cigarette dangled from her mouth as she loaded the syringe with cooked up junk. She made a mental note that it was her last smoke. She needed to re-up on Marlboros. She stubbed the butt out in the ashtray and pulled up her sleeve. Instead of mainlining it directly to her vein, she decided to skin pop the hit. A skin pop would give her a delayed reaction as the drug slowly entered her system underneath the top layer of skin. Instead of the euphoric rush of a jolt sent straight to her bloodstream, she needed to grab some Marlboros from the front desk and a skin pop would buy her a few minutes of time before she was rendered totally useless. She poked the needle gently under the skin of her left arm, pushed the plunger in. The needle bit into her arm, which looked a little more grizzled for 27 than perhaps it should have. Her arms had been getting a rigid junkie workout, and the liquid burned. It felt like her arm was on fire, and then the sensation subsided. Janice immediately felt a shooter's remorse. It was always this moment, right after she shot up. That's when she was most vulnerable, and that's when she wanted to quit the most. She told Seth Morgan that she needed to get off junk. She knew it wasn't impossible. She had kicked meth back before she was even famous. She had even kicked junk once in Rio under David Nyhaus's guidance, but slipped back under heroin spell when she returned to the States. But Morgan was a dealer, for fuck's sakes. He was hardly going to be any help in this particular endeavor. And Morgan had bailed on her that night. She didn't want to think about him anymore. As soon as she pulled the needle from her skin, her mind turned to the people she thought about when she shot up. Nancy Gurley, dead from junk. Sam Andrew, who overdosed that night and turned blue. She tried to suppress the memory of her own OD after the show at the Winterland, but that whole bummer of a scene, which he could remember of it at least loved to rear its judgmental head at moments like these. And then Albert Grossman, his hair long and white, was yelling at her with his hands cupped around his mouth. No schmieze! She felt guilt and shame. Shame for continuing to do something that she knew would ruin her in the end, before even Seth Morgan could ruin her. And guilt for still being alive, when she knew full well that she probably shouldn't. It had only been two weeks since Jimi Hendrix died in that flat in London, and that was a goddamn Shame. Janice felt guilt when she thought about Jimmy, gone at 27, and Al Wilson, guitarist for Canned Heat, gone at 27 too, just a few weeks before that found dead in someone's yard with a bottle of second-law at his side. The burning in her arms started to subside and she knew she had a short window of time. She would nod off soon. She needed to get cigarettes and get back in bed. She threw the empty balloon that held the heroin in the trash, grabbed a $5 bill from her purse, and stepped outside. She then pulled her shirt sleeve down to hide any track marks and thought she heard the rumble of a motorcycle engine approaching from the distance as she made the quick walk to the hotel lobby. We'll be right back after this word, word, word.
5: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
4: The V on the neon vacancy sign near the lobby door of the landmark Motor Hotel flickered on and off. It buzzed every time the light went out, and then would crackle when it came back on. Inside the lobby, Janice slipped Haggy, the hotel's manager, her five-dollar bill and asked for change for the cigarette machine. She popped a few quarters in the machine and pulled on the lever below the Marlboro Reds. And with the cigarettes in one hand and four bucks fifty cents in change in the other she turned to walk back to her room before the skin pop hit did its dark magic. She was only a few steps away when Haggy hollered after her, waving an envelope in his hand. A letter had arrived for Janice weeks before and had sat in her mailbox collecting dust. She never checked and Haggy had forgotten to remind her, until now. Haggy wished Janice a good night, not realizing at the time that he would be the last person she would ever speak to. She took the letter back to her room, She sat on the side of her bed and looked at the postmark, August 17th, almost two months ago. From the postmark, it looked like it was mailed from somewhere in Asia. She opened the envelope and saw that the letter was from David Nyehouse. "'Come on, Mama,' the letter read in David's swashbuckling handwriting. "'Sure would dig that you were here. Come over and see some of the East. A pollen in October is said to be really something. Write me. If you can come for a few weeks or a few years, I really miss you. Things aren't the same, alone. Love you, Mama.' more than you know. She put the letter down on the bed. Then she placed the pack of Marlboros on the table next to the bed. She felt a pang of wanderlust for Rio and Carnival and the beaches of Brazil. She felt a deep desire to see David again. And then she felt the room swerve violently to the left. Janice tilted her head backwards and it felt like it weighed 100 pounds. The fire she'd felt in her arm when she first shot up was now spreading all over her body. It was happening. She could feel it coming. This is the moment when you make sure your buckle is fastened and that your arms and legs are securely inside the vehicle. The room jerked to the side a second time. She felt a wave of nausea and then the fire in her body surged into her neck and head. She shut her eyes and was no longer in the hotel room. She was on the dirt road, surrounded by eucalyptus trees, the one in her dreams that had led to the Vendanta Society near Olema. All she could hear was the distant roar of the ocean and the scattered melody of birdsong. She was waiting standing on the dirt road. Her eyes were clenched tight, just like they were on the bed in the hotel room. She waited some more. She wanted to get lost, real lost, for real lost. She wanted to feel liberated, real liberation. She wanted to hop on the back of the Harley that she knew would come motoring down that road, any minute now. She wanted to hop on the bike, hold on for dear life, and be taken far away, down an unmarked road to an undisclosed location where she could just be. No past, no future just a moment in the present that could be hers, that she could hold on to forever. She knew it was coming. The bike. The gold Harley with the orange flames. The one with the driver, who may or may not be Seth Morgan. And maybe it wasn't Seth Morgan after all. Maybe it was someone or something coming to take her somewhere else. Somewhere far away from Larkspur or Hollywood or San Francisco. And then, in the distance, she heard it. The rumble of the Harley. It was getting closer. She could hear it, but she couldn't see it. The rumble got louder and the ground began to shake. The eucalyptus leaves began to tremble. And the sound of a bike throttle opening up echoed down the road and the hum of the engine got so loud now that Janice had to cover her ears. It sounded like the bike was right beside her, a fucking bat out of hell, but she saw nothing. No bike, no rider, no orange flames, no dust kicking up the road. It was just Janice waiting while the rumble of the engine shook the ground at her feet. She didn't know it at the time, but the heroin she'd skin-popped was a strain called China White. China White had just made its debut on the streets in the States, courtesy of Jean de Bretel, a.k.a. the Count, a.k.a. a French aristocrat and playboy who scored drugs for famous musicians, primarily so he could get his sycophantic yayas out. Some called the Count a solid hookup, others called him a necessary evil, and a few called him a friend. Others referred to him as the jet-setting angel of death. Maybe the kind who favored gold motorcycles with orange flames. Pamela Corson, Jim Morrison's longtime girlfriend, called him a lover, and so did Marianne Faithful. And the Count's China White may have even made its way up the nose of Jim Morrison on his last day on Earth later in 1971. The Count's own shit was so fucking intense that even he couldn't handle it, and it killed him too, at a tender twenty two years old, in Morocco, just months after Morrison was found in a Paris bathtub. China White was the realest shit anyone had seen in 1970. Users were finding out about it the hard way. By shooting and snorting it, thinking it was the same old shit they were used to, its strength was somewhere around 40-50% to 50% pure. This, in comparison to a typical batch of junk circa 1970, which was only 10% pure. So although the skin pop maneuver bought Janice a few minutes to scurry down to the front lobby and back, the hit was pure as fuck China White, which meant those few minutes were the last she'd ever see. Her head, still feeling like a hundred pounds, snapped forward. Her eyes rolled into the back of her head. She fell forward off the bed and her face went right for the bedside table. Her nose came down on the edge of the table and snapped. Blood splattered along the table and the wall. She fell on the floor, face down, stuck between the bed and the table. The four bucks and fifty cents were still in her hand. Hours passed. Sunday morning was coming down. The sun rose and more hours passed. Her phone rang. More hours passed. Her phone rang again. Time had either stopped or it was barreling forward with maniacal speed. Down the road at Sunset Sound, Paul Rothschild had a funny feeling. He knew something wasn't right. He knew it, and he was so upset that he knew it because that funny feeling told him that this wasn't going to end well for anyone. Brian Jones and Jimi Hendrix, they were just the beginning. Rothschild could feel it. He could easily imagine Jim Morrison going down the same road. It was well after 6 p.m. that evening when John Cook finally opened the door to room 105, stepped inside, and laid the first pair of eyes on the unthinkable. Janice Joplin, dead on the floor of the Landmark Motor Hotel at the age of 27. October 7, 1970. Janice Joplin's body was cremated. It had been three days since she had been found on the floor of her hotel room on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood. Her parents wanted to bring her body back to Port Arthur for a traditional funeral, but Janice had made her wishes clear to her attorney shortly before her death, who updated her living will accordingly. She refused to spend eternity in the very place she had spent her adult life running away from it. In life, she caught glimpses of liberation. In death, she wanted a symbolic gesture of liberation to be the last thing she ever did. Only days later, 200 of Janice's friends received invitations in the mail, inviting them to an all-night party at the Lion's Share in Marin County. The drinks are on Pearl, the invitations read. One of the stipulations in Janice's will was that $2,500 of her money fund a post-mortem party for her friends. Partygoers still in mourning, packed the Tiny and Salmo Club on October 26th, where the beer and wine was plentiful and the hash brownies were especially far out. No word on whether the hash brownies were provided courtesy of one of the evening's musical acts, The Grateful Dead, who were perhaps cramming in one last dosing prank on their beloved Pearl, just months after she had returned the favor on the Festival Express, when she got them all shit-faced on booze. Paul Rothschild and the Full Tilt boogie band spent the few weeks immediately following Janice's death finishing up her last album. Pearl was released in January 1971, three months after Janice's death. Almost immediately, it became the biggest record of her career. Her cover of Chris Kristofferson's Me and Bobby McGee was a number one single for two weeks. Paul Rothschild knew he'd never make another album like it. The night Janice died, Bill Graham shut out the house lights at the Fillmore West when he heard the news. It felt like he was shutting the lights out on an era. In 1968, Graham had moved the Fillmore from the intersection of Fillmore and Geary to the corner of Market and Van Ness in order to meet the demand of more and more concert goers. In the summer of 1971, he shut the lights off at the Fillmore for the last time. In 1991, Graham died when the helicopter he was in encountered rough weather near Vallejo, California, and crashed into a high-voltage tower. He was 60. When Clive Davis first heard about Janice's death, he already had Janice on the brain. Columbia's offices had just received a new batch of Janice's previous LP, I Got Them Cosmic Blues Again, Mama. It was selling so well that he needed a re He probably still had Janice on the brain for years and years after the fact when he signed a who's who of strong female artists including Aretha Franklin, Dionne Warwick, Patti Smith, Taylor Dane, Alicia Keys, and Whitney Houston. He is 88 years old and currently holds the title of Chief Creative Officer at Sony Music Entertainment. When Albert Grossman first heard about Janice's death, he felt like he had lost a daughter. The loss of Janice shook him to his core, and he never really recovered. Soon after, Bob Dylan fired Grossman following an especially tenuous stretch. The two were embroiled in legal battles for much of the 70s, Grossman turned his focus to the recording studio and record label Bearsville that he started in the Woodstock neck of the New York woods. He died of a heart attack in 1986. When Chris Christofferson first heard about Janice's death, he was at Joan Baez's place in Carmel, the place he had originally intended to visit that fateful day with Bob Newworth when the great tequila boogie came knocking on Janice's door. The next night, he joined a crowd of Janice's friends at the Landmark Motor Hotel where someone played him Janice's recorded version of Me and Bobby McGee for the first time. From that moment on, every time Christofferson played the song and sang the line somewhere near Salinas, he couldn't help but think of Janice. When David Nyhaus heard about Janice's death, it wasn't that night, it was weeks after, possibly even months, and he heard it secondhand in a back issue of Time Magazine that he just happened to stumble upon while traveling through Afghanistan. Seth Morgan, of course, heard the news right away, he went looking for liberation in his own twisted way and instead fell on increasingly harder times. He became addicted to heroin and then became a pimp to support his addiction. When that wasn't enough, he turned to armed robberies. He did 30 months in the joint. He got sober and wrote a novel called Homeboy. He took the book money and started shooting cocaine. And then on October 19, 1990, loaded up on blow, Percodan and a blood alcohol content three times the legal limit, Seth Morgan drove a motorcycle at high speed into the median strip on a New Orleans bridge. Both Morgan and his current girlfriend who rode on the back seat were killed instantly. Janice Joplin's body was cremated at her request and following a very private and very intimate service attended only by immediate family just days after her death. Her ashes were scattered into the sea off the coast of Marin County. The spot is one of the windiest in the entire state of California. In a single dramatic gust, her ashes were carried off by the wind, flung from the edge of the world and into the great beyond with nothing holding them back. Janis Joplin spun out in the California ether and into the consciousness of America. She didn't so much adhere to the model live fast die young as she did live fast die free. Even if she did die, the tender age of 27, and even if it was only in death that she realized true liberation. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. All right, this episode of The 27 Club is brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, Nirvana, Prince, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, Cardi B, and many, many more, go to amazon.com Disgraceland. Or if you have an Echo device, just say, hey, Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. The 27 Club is hosted and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Our previous seasons on Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison are available for you to binge right now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to find and follow The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about the 27 Club. You can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rockarola.